Hello and welcome to the Aurora Energy Research Podcast. This edition will be looking at the Summer Renewable Summit held at the Institution of Engineering and Technology at the Savoy in London. There was, of course, much to discuss with one of the big questions of the day being whether the UK can meet the challenge of reaching net zero emissions by 2050 and deliver on the commitment made by signing the Paris Agreement. Ben Colley is principal in the Commission Projects team at Aurora and his role includes evaluating the impact of changes in energy policy. Ben's presentation opened the day's proceedings. What we found was that, firstly, it would require a lot of investment in renewables, probably between £4 billion and £9 billion per year on average. Uh, Secondly, that scale of deployment would have a very serious effect on the economics of renewables, pushing down capture prices and potentially uh, leading to widespread curtailment. And then we looked at the, the implications of that, both for policymakers and for developers, utilities and investors. Now, there are different things that policymakers can do to try and resolve the challenge for the economics of renewables. Some of those involve more market-like mechanisms, things like carbon pricing or reintroducing re- renewables obligation certificates. And some things could be more state-led. You could imagine, for instance, a big expansion of the contract for different scheme that's been supporting offshore wind recently. Can we go into a bit more depth about what the economics uh, would mean for policymakers? When we consider the amount of uh, cannibalisation of Uh, renewables prices by 2050. If we look at wind in particular, whereas today we're seeing about £50 per megawatt hour being earned by by wind, in 2050 we could be seeing maybe £40 per megawatt hour in a world with high nuclear deployment, or as little as £20 per megawatt hour in a world with high renewables deployment. So the challenge for the government is to say, how do you bridge that gap, given that the levelised cost of electricity for renewables uh, might still be in the range 40 to 50 pounds per megawatt hour if you believe the the committee on climate change projections and um, so the government could step in with some kind of um, subsidy type support for renewables or it could try and uh, design some kind of market mechanism to uh, to deliver that extra revenue but under the current um, policy regime with the current expectations about costs uh, merchant renewables as they are today are unlikely to, to bridge the, the gap and to get us to net zero. And I guess that's all linked to uh, the slide you brought up about clues as to uh, the policies that might be coming on in the future. That's right, yes. There are several possible policy de- developments that could happen in the, the, the next couple of years that would make a, a big difference and give us a clue as to, to where we're going. That could be news on the Uh, possible extensions to the contract for different budget to support offshore wind. It might be about allowing onshore wind and solar to participate in the contract for difference auctions. It might be about how the government will support future nuclear deployment, uh, about the timeline for carbon capture usage and storage, where the first facilities are currently expected to be commissioned in the the mid-2020s. Or it could be something on the demand side, Flexible demand for uh, for heating and for electric vehicles is going to play a really important role. Um, So uh, the ambition that the government sets for that will make a big difference to the economics of renewables in the future. Ben Colley there, principal in the Commission Projects team at Aurora. Chris Stark is CEO of the Committee on Climate Change, the authors of the recent government-requested report into reassessing the UK's long-term emissions targets. He was interviewed on stage by Aurora's research director, Richard Howard. 
What we learned was that it's possible to do deep emissions reduction in every sector of the economy, bar a couple, um, uh, to the extent that uh, it is now possible, we think, to nail the net zero as the, as, as the target by 2050 for all greenhouse gases. Um, and I have to say that all greenhouse gases matters. So that's, uh, it's not just about CO2. Um, and, uh, and we said to government, because, because you can do it and because we think the costs are manageable, the science requires it, um, and you should get on and do that now. So this should be a comprehensive target that looks across all of the sectors of the economy, including international aviation and shipping. Um, we said it's possible to do this domestically, so that should be the focus, rather than using international credit. And the crucial thing, uh, the thing that we will be repeating, I'm sure, for as long as I'm in this role, is that the target means nothing unless there are a set of policies in place uh, to drive actions to meet it. And, yeah. um, and, and, you know, the report dwelled a lot on the sorts of actions that would deliver net zero. How was it received? And specifically, what do you say to the Extinction Rebellion people who say 2050 is way too late, Chris? It, we, we want it in 2025. Yeah, just as you say, Richard, um, uh, the, the majority of the, of the debate that's been had and the difficult debate that we've had since publishing has been with... Uh, the lobby that would like to see us go faster and, and regards our recommendation as being conservative, um, overly conservative. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, that's, in one sense, that's a good debate. So, you know, that's, that's, that's not something I expected would happen a year ago. But my main response to Extinction Rebellion and others who, who look for a tougher target is great, but there are some very big barriers to achieving an earlier net zero date. Yeah. Um, you know, the most obvious ones are there are 30 million homes in this country. Uh, that's a million a year, uh, for those of you who've done the maths. Um, and that's, that we are not doing that in any, by, by any stretch at the moment. Uh, there are simple things like planting enough trees. Trees yeah. take a while to grow. We do not have yet uh, the right skills in this economy to deploy the solutions that we need to get to net zero at the appropriate scale to do something, I think, sooner than 2050. Um, the interesting thing, I suppose, is if you follow the lesson of the last 10 years and if you put the right conditions in place early, it's possible we might get there sooner. But, you know, there are huge risks, I think, in naming an earlier date when you have yeah. no certainty that the policies can do that kind of heavy lifting. Chris Stark there speaking to Richard Howard. Emma Pinchbeck is Deputy CEO at Renewables UK, the trade body for the future of the electricity system. She's worked on decarbonisation right across energy, demand side and supply side, over the last 10 years. She was taking part in a panel entitled Preparing for Power Decarbonisation's Endgame, Possible Futures and How They Affect Today's Strategies. So I come at this from two directions. The first is a climate change-led one, which is you know, following the Paris Agreement, uh, the CCC's 1.5 degree report, and indeed kind of basic climate science. We know we need to rapidly decarbonise our economy and the global economy, doing most of the heavy lifting in the next decade, starting with the power sector. And then the other side of the coin is massive technology change that we've seen and market change that we've seen from the cost reductions in renewables. And that is driving a power system which by 2030 we're now pretty confident will see renewables as the incumbent form of generation. And so everyone in the energy sector is wondering what market design and what infrastructure design best supports a variable, flexible, very cheap technology. Have you got any thoughts on that that you can share? Okay, so I got asked about pricing. I mean, we were talking about pricing because, you know, as economists, we like to do that. And um, I refused kind of to answer the question because I think 
conversation. So you didn't quite refuse. You, you moved it on. <laughs> you said it's not necessarily the right question. What's that called in politics? The kind of, you know... Avoid steering. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, I steered it onto more comfortable territory. No, the reason is that I think it's the wrong question to ask now because... You know, you tend to get, we tend to talk about pricing in a, in a few ways. One is about, you know, the kind of pure economist thing about stuff like capture prices. Another is the policymakers' take on things like strike prices and the CFD. And another is the public take on energy bills. And it gets really complicated really quickly. It's the first thing. And the second thing is we tend to talk about prices being disrupted, changed, having to adapt to new technology coming on and, and the... The, the way renewables generates electricity and what that's doing to pa- the market design. And my thing is, what we should actually be talking about is what is the correct market design and where is the value in the energy system when renewables are not the outsider technology, they're the incumbent. The conversation about pricing is irrelevant unless you're grappling with that huge overall system change. Now, if the number of people taking pictures of the PowerPoint demonstration was anything to go by, then Aurora's other major presentation was the subject of much interest. It was titled Beyond Corporate PPAs, Alternative Ways to Manage Merchant Exposure, and was delivered by Aurora's Head of Product Development, Matthias Vronsky. It's undeniable uh, to most of the audience here that we live through what could be described as the age of PPA hype. Uh, uh, PPA, corporate PPAs have become something of a, uh, a Bitcoin of the uh, energy industry, in, uh, definitely in the sense of how much excitement they generate, and maybe also in the sense of how much promise they hold, at least according to some. Now, what we wanted to do is ask ourselves, what's next? What's beyond corporate PPAs? Because we don't think corporate PPAs are sufficient. They have a huge role to play. We help corporates. We help, util- we, help, we help utilities, we help uh, uh, developers link with corporates. But we also think that the massive decarbonization challenge that we have ahead of us will require other parties and other solutions in the private sector to emerge to, in a sense, replace government. Because the government is stepping out, it's setting very ambitious targets, and at the same time it's saying, well, we don't want to take the merchant risk anymore. And corporates can take a part of that risk but not all of it. So the crux of my speech was really about who else has to step up. And and there's certainly a role for utilities to play, bigger than they have played so far. There's certainly a role for insurers. Uh, there's a role for uh, hedges, so long-term exchange hedges, when the counterparty is the uh, central clearing agency of the exchange, like uh, in the case of EEX. Uh, and there's finally a role for merchants play, so really investors taking the risks, asset owners taking the risks, and trying to manage it effectively. So that was also a big part of what I was trying to convey today, which is that retaining that risk and managing it through portfolio diversification could be an efficient strategy for certain more, in a sense, risk-friendly investors. Uh, Higher risk, higher return. The merchant portfolio play could be quite interesting. Of course, events such as these can't be held without suitable support and sponsors. In this case, it was Lloyds Bank. Jonas Persson is their MD of Sustainable Natural Resources. Well, I I try always to listen as much as I can because it's an opportunity to learn on this conference. But I also contributed to one of the panel sessions uh, to talk about what debt and equity investors would like from a renewables business in the UK. And why is that such a key issue, would you say? Well, you know, sustainability is important, not only for us as an institution. Uh, We have very kind of focused uh, objectives as an institution, but 
key thing here is that we want to help our clients to transition into more sustainable kind of business model. And this is a great opportunity to connect those loose ends. Why is it such a good event for you to be involved in? Well, first of all, I think the event is attracting the relevant uh, industry people. So, you know, people have influence, uh, intellectual capital, uh, solution-based kind of propositions. So relevant audience, relevant uh, panels. And, and that's how we learn as well as the institution. So finally then, what are the conclusions that can be drawn from the 2019 Summit Renewable Summit? Here's Aurora Energy Research's Executive Director and CEO, John Federson. I think we learned a few things today. Obviously, when we're talking about 2050, we're all going to be wrong. That's not news to anyone. Uh, the world is complicated. Technological progress is unexpected. Uh, and that was a theme of the day. But I think there's a few a few things that were a general consensus and probably enabled me to update my expectations. The first is, I think we are going to see renewables investors and developers exposed to market forces. The future will not see government as the sole risk bearer as we manage the energy transition and there's a lot of value in exposing people who are uh, deploying money to market forces. The second thing is we're going to need some very clever government intervention in the electricity market. And I think a point I really wanted to make today, based on Aurora's experience globally, is that the UK is an example for the rest of the world in many respects. Uh, and we're going to need government asking itself, how can we support decarbonisation, which will cost money, it's not free, technology is highly unlikely to get us there, so how can, we, how can we support decarbonisation, uh, but at the same time ensure that people are bearing risks that the private sector is best placed to manage? John Federson, Aurora's co-founder and CEO. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. Do go to our website, auroraer.com, and keep an eye out for other events being held by Aurora Energy Research. And also take a look at the products and services we offer. In the meantime, it's goodbye.